1: A key enabler of Austin's growth are the unique institutions, events, and infrastructure that only exists in our region. In 2018, the Army Futures Command chose Austin as its new base of operations. We wanted to learn why and how that is empowering our future here in Central Texas. Today we speak with Brantz Huggets of the Army Applications Laboratory, a division of the Army Futures Command. Brantz is a tech geek and a connector. While previous roles saw brands in labs building UAVs, simulating black hole phenomena, and using particle accelerators, he spent the last seven years building innovation programs and communities of deep tech entrepreneurs. He currently sources commercial technologies that solve the DoD's toughest modernization challenges. His active areas of interest include artificial intelligence, autonomous robots, cybersecurity, and the intersection of technology and art. And that's a great place to start a discussion.
2: Brantz, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me, excited to join you guys.
2: All right, I wanna start off with the broader picture. What is the mission and vision of Army Futures Command and how does Army Applications Lab fit into that?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I'll start with, with maybe size first and like that's gonna back us into how we, how we play. So. Army Futures Command is is a fairly big deal. So, like, the the Army had been organized into into three branches. And in 2018, they they created a fourth branch. So, like, a massive reorganization, the largest reorganization of the Army since, like, the Vietnam era. And broadly speaking, Army Futures Command is working to modernize the the Army. Like, all of the technology needs that the Army has – AFC is is modernizing that. So they look at everything from super early stage R&D that's happening in labs, like the Army Research Lab, all the way through fielding and testing uh, new products and new solutions. So it's a a huge swath of stuff to tackle, especially if you think about all the tech needs that the Army has. So AEL, we're a very small organization. We've got about 30, 35 people, but we have a really niche uh, mission. And I think it's really important uh, in the grand scheme of things, but it's, it's a very niche and he's thing. army applications looks at how can the army leverage innovation from the commercial sector in order to solve army problems better, faster, more efficiently. And like, if you think about the the, the army, kind of gets this bad rep of like reinventing the wheel all the time, you know, we like we need a water bottle but it has to be like painted blue and have this logo on it. So it's gonna cost us like a thousand dollars per water bottle. Like that's what we don't wanna do, right? We wanna like cut down on that process. And it's you know it's even less a factor of, of money, although that is important. But it's really just a factor of, of speed, right? Like if it takes us five years to figure out how to counter, you know, counteract drone technology, like that's five years where we're behind, right? So we have to be able to iterate uh, much more quickly and efficiently. And so by leveraging tech from the commercial sector, we think that that's our our way in. We think that that's the way that we can move at a faster pace. Does that help?
2: So it does. So, so operationally, then, how do you go about actually accomplishing that goal?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. So when, when AL was stood up, uh, we had this really great idea that we were going to be like the eyes and ears of the Army and keep an eye on uh, the, the tech ecosystem, hear really great ideas and really great companies, and like turn around to the Army and say, hey, this is cool tech, this is a cool company, Like, this is how we should use it. Turns out that that is really hard to do. Like the army is just not set up on the back end to like react that quickly. And a lot of it has to do with like with purchasing things, right? The, there's a, a funny story of like, there's there's this company that that came just early on and they have got this game changing radio technology. Um, and so we like get excited. We 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 turn to the the general in the army who's like r- responsible for it for and he says, this is great. I literally just signed the order to purchase like 100,000 radios yesterday. Like, I have, I can't do anything with this. I I can't spend another like dime on this because I just wrote this huge check to buy radios, right? So, about a year and a half ago, we decided that we really had to like flip this business model on like 180 degrees. And we really had to start with the army problem first. And make sure that that was the right problem at the right time with the right budgets and, and everything lined up before we we go engage industry. So so operationally, what that looks like is we have folks on our teams that will go embed themselves with a, an army unit and understand what problems they have. And we're doing kind of two things at, at the same time. Right. We're understanding the problem and trying to get at the like the the root problem, not just like I need a water bottle. I need to paint it blue, but like I need soldiers to be better hydrated. Right. So really understanding the problem space. Uh, and at the same time uh, folks like myself on on the AL team are looking at what's happening in an industry and saying is there anything is there any activity in this space are there any commercial analogs to this problem right so like the water bottle example like what can we learn from the pro sports industry or like the the college sports industry are there like new technologies new companies that are popping up and we're also trying to get a feel for like how active is this ecosystem right is there like one company that that makes water bottles for, for all of college and, and NFL sports, or is it is there this big ecosystem around like wellness, right? So we're trying to figure out the the size of the market that can solve this. And then all this stuff happens on the back end once we've decided it's a good problem and that there's like this commercial market that can, that can tackle it. And if we do our jobs well at AEL, like you as a solver or you as a company never see this stuff, but it's really important. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll pat ourselves on the back here. What we try to do, is we try to line up like, one, we want to have the end user, like the person who's going to be using the water bottle and have them set aside time to like do R&D jointly with us. We want to make sure that obviously there's money to like do this R&D project, but also there's follow on money so that we don't just create this cool science fair project that sits on a shelf and nobody's ready to buy it. And then lastly, we are really getting these like high level handshakes that are agreements where if AAL and this company mature this technology and it's successful, then there's somebody on the other end waiting to buy it and like budgeting for it like two to three years out. Right. And all of that stuff is that's, those are the cogs of the, like, the army purchasing system that just drags everything down that people don't like, but that's what we're trying to line up. So, so we joke that like all of the government hoops that you have to jump through, we're trying to line them up all together so that you just have to jump once and you've got it all, you've got it all figured out.
1: In a sense, it sounds a lot like the SBIR programs, the small business innovation research programs, the set asides that the DOD and all the other federal agencies have. And a lot of that's been used to fund small businesses. And I remember working with companies that were using SBIR type grants, there was always a shopping list. Here was the problem of said agency, DOD, you know, whatever, and it sounds like you're taking that one step further and actually going in and searching for these problems and then searching for solutions. How would you compare the two programs?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So AAL uses SBIR funds quite extensively, and I'll chalk that up to like to two things. Um, one, it's it's a really good source of money for for us, right? It, like it fits our needs really well. But two, like we're still a new organization from from a government perspective. And so, like, I liken us to a really well-funded startup. Like, we're scrappy. We're trying to get our hands on every dollar we can in order to, like, to do more work and and do more projects, right? And so, we have wound up leveraging SBIR quite extensively. I would say that the SBIR program is like kind of gives you like this foundation of model of of, of how to work. But AAL has taken our business model uh, and laid it on top of SBIR funds, and and we package it in a program called Spartan Sibber. But really, what it is is like we want to package. That access to end users, the access to decision makers, the transparency of the problems, and like we want to deploy capital much faster than typical CIBER programs, so we add on all of like the bells and whistles that we're well positioned to uh, to provide to make CIBER a little bit more effective, a little bit more user friendly. I mean, like here's a here's a good example. Historically, CIBER is released in like three batches throughout the year, right? And so if you are a run of the mill startup that hasn't Worked for the government very much, or has never worked for the government. Like, how are you supposed to know that? That you have to watch like these three dates, circle them on your calendar, and like spend the whole day digging through the like the SAM.gov website. Like, that is, you're never going to know that stuff, right? So we just do like common sense, right? We release the problems, the the solicitations as we have these problems. We post them on Twitter and LinkedIn and social media. Like, we do email blasts, like just kind of table stakes for startups these days. Like we're trying to bring that to the, to the server process. And again, don't like, don't take this me knocking the server process. It's really effective. Uh, But how ALS has built out, we like, we add a little bit more, uh, a few more bells and whistles onto it.
2: It seems right. Even talking about, you know, um, SPR and your long, you know, talk about the, the procurement process, that it's process and models is Almost as important as the innovation itself, and we've heard a lot about twelve-year procurement cycles and cost-plus, um, you know, budgeting. That may be one of the things that's obviously driving the disconnect between uh, you know the faster private sector innovation versus the you know much more slower uh, innovation that's going on in kind of the DoD sector. So it's it's great to hear that you know one of the, you've already talking about more on the process and model innovation as much as kind of the product and technology innovation. One of the other pillars, though, as you see this, is almost the the cultural innovation. And I think the relationship between tech and uh, and DOD, because if you look back, uh, you will just see kind of the Cold War era, right? There was a lot of want and collaboration between the private sector and the military. In the last, I don't know, 20 years, what, I don't know what the right dates to kind of put on it, you've seen the opposite. You've seen actually a, we don't want to work with... Uh, with the DOD, this is not kind of what we're looking at. You saw things that, you know, with Amazon and, and Google in terms of some of the projects that they were working on with the, the intelligence sector as well. Do you see that continued pushback? But I also want to say the opposite. You're starting to have a new, I've seen you know, a new class of companies like the, you know, the Andrels of the world that are starting with the, it's important to us to work with the defense sector. Um, And, you know, if you, you, know you hear, you know, Palmer Luckey talk, he talks a lot about kind of the same kind of process innovation that we're talking about. So... In the work that you guys have been doing what's kind of the cultural innovation that's going on where are you seeing that shift that shift occurring
0: yeah absolutely so i think a couple things to to talk about there so uh, first you mentioned that like the business model and exporting our business model like that's absolutely a mission for for aal i think it's a little boastful to say that like two and a half three years in like we've got it down and, and we're gonna like write the book for the army but We are bringing a lot of the just, again, table stakes, commercial best practices that are that are commonly known. And we're trying to just communicate that to the rest of the army, like writ large of like, hey, I know you've been doing this process for for 20 years or 40 years, but like here is here's the playbook for how to like like hop, skip and jump. 20 years to like, to what industry is doing right now. Right. Like we're not going to, we're not going to be like the bleeding edge of business models, but like at least we're doing what like 90, 90% of other people are doing in the commercial sector. So like absolutely exporting business models uh, is, is a mission for us. And you can see that like, we're still learning and figuring this out just with our idea of like, Hey, it'd be great if we could be this reactionary innovation force. And like, we're just not there yet. Right. So what can we do now? And like, how can we probably share that, share those best practices. So absolutely doing that. When, when you mention like this cultural piece and the, maybe the stigma of working with the government, I actually think that this is a, a misnomer. I don't have like hard data to back this up, but anecdotally, I think this is a, a slight misnomer. That's like, that that's maybe exaggerated via, via news channels a little bit. Like generally, I think the actual problem is that most companies have no idea how to work with the government or the DOD. And so it's just like, there's no appetite there, right? So you have like broadly a like small appetite. And then a few of these like folks who like don't specifically don't want to work with the DOD. And it kind of just like makes, makes seem like everybody doesn't. But in general, I find that especially by leveraging SBI funds, which are non-dilutive funding, we provide this really amazing opportunity to de-risk the technology roadmap for a company and so if companies understand how to leverage this, like even just like a tiny little bit, it all of a sudden becomes this really great opportunity. And for AEL, like we're not really working on offensive weapons, right? Like, like we are working on tools and technologies that um, support the soldier, but we're not building bombs. We're not building like new bullets, it, you know, not to say we never will do that, but like generally our projects really are like, how do we make soldiers more effective at their jobs? So. The, the jump between what we're asking companies to do and what they're already doing in the commercial sector generally isn't that big. Like, I'll give you an example here. The, the army has cannons, right? And they, they shoot these big like artillery rounds. that are like, they look like massive bullets and they weigh a hundred pounds. And up until like today, basically, um, the way that we would reload these is we like, you don't wanna store all your ammunition next to the cannon in case it blows up, right? So you like have this like supply depot, you like drive this, you know this jeep with like pallets of these hundred-pound shells, and then you have soldiers like bucket brigade these things back into the like into the raft, right? I get it, like that's like a, a fail-proof way. Human labor is fail proof generally, but like not super efficient. Tires soldiers out, causes so much like back problem, knee problems, right? Like, and we need to be able to do this faster, right? So we started working with companies that are building like heavy-duty robotic arms that can lift hundred-pound shells. And reload them quickly and efficiently but what we find is that like there are a lot of companies and needs from the industry like industrial sector that need to do the same exact thing right like robotic automation is a huge like there's a, there's a huge market and so by asking companies like hey can you make this so i can grab like grab like round things instead of square things like yeah sure like can you make this so it's like uh, you know, a little more fault tolerant or it it uses less power. Cool. Yeah. Like industry wants that too. So we're basically just de-risking the, the tech roadmap that these companies want to do anyway. So there's, there's definitely a, a alignment there. So, okay. I'll, I'll like pause there for a second and talk about folks like Andrew. Cause I think it's, a, it's this really cool phenomenon. Um, so you've got several of these like defense unicorns that are popping up. And like, there's, there's jokes sort of about like, how do you, defense, Create a defense unicorn like you start with a billion dollars and you start a defense company, like that's sort of the the case a a little bit. But I think actually what you're finding here is that you've got these serial entrepreneurs who understand product market fit and market opportunity insanely well, right? Like they understand those like those fundamentals insanely well, so that they're able to look at the defense market generally. This market that like Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are are just like ignoring. And they say, hey, actually, there's this huge gap where we have expertise and we can make like we can make a big splash. And I think you're starting to see that like cultural change, like proliferate out. I think it's sort of trickling down through like certain VCs who are more open to this and, and not everybody's on board. But I think you're starting to see that cultural shift change. And I think it's for the better. Right. Like the traditional defense primes do a ton of work for us, but we can't expect five companies to do everything that we need. Um, and. You know, those companies just look at us, look at us as the Army and say, what do you need, right? And here are these other companies like Andrew saying, hey, you're missing out on all this cool tech that, that the commercial sector is doing. You guys are light years behind and like, here's a product for you. Um, so I think that's a good thing in general that we're creating some of these, you know, new faces in an old industry.
1: Let's take a look down a level and um, look at how AAL and Army Futures Command has come into Austin. Why Austin?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it dovetails nicely with the the last comments about um, defense primes, you know, historical defense primes uh, and what they were doing wasn't meeting the need, right? Like we were getting outpaced by our peer adversaries and the, the speed of innovation in the commercial sector is exponentially increasing compared to what the army is doing or what the DOD broadly is doing. Right. So I think that there's this this need to get out of the like the the DC area and say we we can't put this other command in the DC area cuz we have to like break the mold of like traditional you know traditional bonds there right and then I think that you know a natural place to think about would be Silicon Valley right it's like the the hub of you know tech innovation but there's some of that like PR cultural change that wasn't really ready or the right the right scene I don't think so then I think you're left with this, like, swath of middle America. It's, like, broadly, like, not the coast is what I'm talking about right there. And there's a lot of good candidates. You know, I think the, like, the Raleigh-Durham area was, was a contender for a while. And even within, like, within Texas, like, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of good cities here that that I think could be candidates. I think what made it special was that from Austin, you've got Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, like the Austin market itself is phenomenal, but you're surrounded by this like triumvirate of like powerhouse cities and unbelievable amounts of like corporate innovation, startup innovation, venture capital. Like there's so much that's happening just in Texas. And then from Austin, you can reach either coast. People can travel here easily. And all that is basically like ignoring Austin itself as a city, right? Just like all of the surrounding things about Austin that make it great. And then you look at the Austin ecosystem and like, it is just, it is blowing up, right? It's been blowing up for the last five years. and It doesn't look like that's going to slow down, you know, significantly anytime soon, right? You've got all these companies that are relocating to Austin for cost of living, um, like talent. Like There's so many of the right ingredients about Austin. And then you start layering on like things like South by Southwest coming up. And that is just this crazy nexus points in Austin throughout the year that bring people in, bring talent in, and you really get this mix of ideas and culture that the army needed. Right. And so I think that it, it's a it's the, it's the talent, it's a startups, it's like the, the solvers. And then culturally, I think it's the right place for us. Like, we're, we're not afraid of the DOD. Like, we, we like the military in, in Texas. We've got innovators. And honestly, like Texans are hungry, right? Like Texans want to want to work, you know, um, they want to solve big problems and hard problems. Um, and, and there's so much alignment with like industrial needs and, and enterprise needs of what we're doing. So I, I think it's a match made in heaven. So anyways, that's rambling a little bit. Some Texas pride coming out there. Hopefully that, Hopefully that plays.
1: <laughs> no, actually, that's a great definition of what makes Austin unique and is perfect for what we're talking about today. And clearly, you mentioned more and more companies moving to Austin. So, of these companies coming here, whether it's headquarters, whether it's subsidiaries, whether it's new plants, what are the types of companies that AAL is looking for?
0: Great question. So, we have three like very—I mean, like three technology verticals. They're very broad, so I'll I'll, I'll kind of tease them out for you guys, but. Broadly speaking, the the three priorities for us over the next two years or so are energy and electrification as everything from like grid level energy. How do we power bases more efficiently, effectively? How do we transfer that energy in the most efficient and effective way possible? And how do we build resilience around around grids? And that's a timely conversation for for Austin, for Texas. When we look at, we scale it down a little bit more to, to the electric vehicle side how is the army going to electrify fleets of vehicles and what are the the specific challenges around electrifying vehicles in remote locations with maybe not the best infrastructure or no infrastructure how do you look at these electric vehicles like connecting with the grid and connecting with end users as a kind of this like drivable giant battery and then like scaling it down even more to The soldier and like the individual, how do we generate power out in the field more efficiently? How do we get off of like gas and diesel generators? There's so much here that I like blows my mind, but like, what's the software and the algorithmic innovation that's happening to like optimize energy storage and energy energy transfer? All of that, like makes your iPhone battery last for two days instead of like two hours. But most people don't think about that at all. So that's the, the type of stuff that we're looking for in energy. The the next broad category is applied AI and applied robotics. An example of this would be the, the company I talked about making the robotic arms to lift the, um, the the cannons to their artillery rounds. Really, what we're looking for here is technology that reduces like man hours. We look at safety a, a little bit, but like really we look at how can we create technologies that are force multipliers for soldiers? So instead of taking 10 soldiers to unload a truck, can we create forklifts that one guy can press a button on an iPad and have these, this forklift unload this, this trap. So look at that, those force multiplier um, technologies. And then the last category for us is, is human performance. And this is a really interesting one that there's, I think there's a lot of alignment with the, the commercial sector, but we're still figuring out our, our footing here. But when we think about human performance, it's not just like, can I run faster, jump higher? It's, can I sleep better? Can I wake up feeling rested? and like a clear head. Can I maintain like a healthy emotional and mental status, right? Like all these are problems that surround the army, surround the DOD. And they're all kind of interconnected with this, this human performance aspect. Yeah. We, we want people to be able to run fast. like we, we got that, but like, we can put them on treadmills. we got that. We got that part sort of figured out, but kind of this holistic health piece is is really important to us. And you look at interesting companies like, I mean, like Apple watch and Fitbit, right. But um the, the ordering and whoop and all these companies that are starting to say like hey we can't just look at like how fast you ran a mile. We need to look at, at you as the the person holistically um, and make sure that you are op- like you are functioning at an optimal level. Um, so so those are the three pillars that we're uh, we're working on. And then like like any organization with somebody higher up, there's always the kind of like stray voltage thing that's like, this is a really great project we should work on. So I will I'll leave maybe like 20% of my time for just those like cool ideas that that happen um that for sure are gonna get gonna come across come across our radar.
2: So I, I wanna touch on the human performance for a second because I think there's an interesting thing and in, and my background is is all in is in life science and you know innovation in that space. What I find interesting is I want to combine the human performance with your talk about the tech de-risking and almost the the multiplier, which one of the problems that I tend to see that we have in I'll call broadly the health and wellness space is there's a lot of gray, right? You have the very clinical FDA type of path. You have the things that are being sold for the moon, but are obviously snake oil, and you've got that kind of gray area in between. It's an interesting bet by companies that might want to, you know, work with someone like an AAL to be able to say, because look, this can't be snake oil if we're selling it, to the, if we're trying to work on the performance of our soldiers, like this has to actually work. This has to be, uh, you know, something that, that not only work, but has a, you know, a, a I'll call it, you know, a clinical significant level of improvement, right? Like, hey, if I sleep better by one minute and I can statistically prove that, wonderful. Who cares, right? It's not actually a a, a broad, strong enough um, uh, difference, right? So I think that is a really interesting kind of multiplier effect that you guys would be able to do to really kind of let people put their things through the rigor and say, we're going to make our soldiers better. And clearly, if I can make, in the worst case scenario, soldiers sleep better, you in your bed and regular thing probably will also have that that level of um that positive just taking sleep is the example but at the same time as you said whether it's run faster and then this obviously goes to the the entire gamut as you said the whole everything from physical performance to mental performance to mental well-being um a lot of different things from that that i think will really have the ability to kind of maybe start in the kind of what we did in the old in the old days like let's say the shuttle program where things started and were innovated in the military and then the commercial applications kind of came second so that actually something that really kind of gets me excited and interested here.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting. And like looking at the, the progress of some of these technologies in the health and wellness space, like a lot of them take a, a clinical first route, right? Like if you think about uh, like new sensors for like blood glucose levels, right? Like that, that has a, like a clinical need for, for diabetics. Right. But if we think about how, like a, like a B2C company and like a, the, the mass audience could gain value out of continually monitoring their, their blood glucose levels. Like there's so much opportunity there, but like that's not your beachhead market, right? You like, you have to start with, with diabetic stress and like, okay, so can we develop new sensors um, and new algorithm algorithms to analyze this data that, you know, we prove out on these, in these clinical areas or like pseudo clinical areas. And then eventually, what will we'll be adopted into the, you know, in the mass mass market um, is I think that the DoD use case here is, is an example of that, right? Like we will pilot new sensors, right? Like if you've got a new crazy cool new sensor that is going to like let us understand the human body better, like we will pilot that. And you've got a baked-in, like, user group who's going to be active and moving every day, right? Like, we really care about this.
2: Well, I was going to say, so I actually used to work in the uh, continuous glucose monitor space, so <laughs> I know it quite well. But it, it's an interesting thing that you say is I want to bring back the business model, right? Because one of the biggest things that I think is stopping, obviously, mass adoption. Now, you're seeing, uh, you know, CGM technology be used by kind of the optimizers, the human, the longevity crowd, and the, and, and the like. But you also see, it, it was, to your point, it was started off as a type 1 um, use case, and it's only recently been moving into type two. But what's interesting is one of the biggest issues why it hasn't gotten mass has been cost, right? The sensors are still very expensive. They last for a number of days, and they have to have that kind of technology in. What my question is, getting back to our process and procurement, is, as we kind of said, generally speaking, the DoD is is overpaid for things, their water bottle example and the like. So if the in this particular case, if driving down the cost element is really the key feature how can the dod be the one to you know push that type of innovation since historically that's not been the 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 area in which they've innovated
0: yeah that's a really good question and i don't think that the army is is doing this super super well and like if you think about like, do we have a capacity to write a solicitation that specifically looks for like low cost glucose sensors? Absolutely, like we can do that. and prove out new technologies that that will bring this cost down. But really, what we're innovating there is like the the fundamental underlying technology. And like if if the CGM uh, like aren't like principles are going to cost you hundred dollars, and it's just like that's what it's going to cost. Like then there's only so much we can do there. So you know if instead we say like okay we're going to fund something that looks at like, you know, a, a light-based sensor that can do CGM. Like, okay, that's something that we, where we play. But really, I think what what you're getting at is like, does the army facilitate price reduction when producing at scale? And I don't think that we do that very effectively, right? Like we kind of support startups and say like, Hey, like, here's some options. If you need to find a manufacturing partner, like we, we loosely do that, but like we actually don't, haven't built the skills that are the tools yet to do that effectively. And so I think there's this huge opportunity there for large players in this, in the innovation space to support this. Right. So like if you are a large manufacturing company that like crushes the ability to take a a prototype and reduce the cost by 20 X and mass produce it like millions of units, like the companies that we're working with, the startups that we're working with need that help. Right. Like if, if we want to create CGM for for every soldier, but we need to get that price down to like $10 a patch instead of a hundred, like that startup probably won't be able to do that. So in a dream world, AAL and AFC would like have this Rolodex of like VCs and transition partners on the industry side that we could like kick these companies to. And and they'd have this like accelerator support network that would help them scale and, and produce millions of products for the army. Like, we're not there yet maybe someday we'll like have like the legal infrastructure to do that and the like the know-how how to do that but as of right now we're we're not so you know we really we really kind of trust the network right now to find each other and say like hey you know if if you need help go go partner with the primes you know go go partner with one of the large defense contractors who knows how to do this or go find someone uh you know who mass produces cpg products and like you know so, so anyway, we we can get better there but absolutely in need and and i think to keep up with innovation globally, we'll need to figure out how to streamline that process.
1: Well, clearly scaling up is one of the biggest issues for any small company, any innovation company. And you've outlined three areas that cover everything from physics to mathematics and AI to human factors. So that's a broad scope. Great, all necessary. Um, But when you're talking to companies, whether they're already here in Austin or they're looking at moving to Austin, scale is one thing. What are the other big issues that these people face when they're deciding on on working with you here or coming here to work with you?
0: That's, that's a great question. So I would I would kind of answer that in like two two categories, right? First, like working with AAL, and then moving to Austin. Um, and I'll like I'll call it here that. Companies can work with AAL. They don't have to move to Austin to work with us. We work with many companies globally uh, or, or across the country. But thinking about should a company work with AAL? So the first thing that I want to know is, does the Army's need align with your existing technology development roadmap? And if it does, great. Like we are like a match made in heaven there. Probably. We're probably match made in heaven there. But if it doesn't, I don't want to say that we're not going to work with you or you, we, you shouldn't work with us, but I really would advise companies to look at, like, are you just applying for this because you're running out of runway and you're grasping for straws? And like, like that can work. Like, there are companies that like continually get SBIR grants and like, you know, become this cibber mill and they're just chasing the next one. Like, there are successful companies that do that, but there's a lot of companies that that, that really is the, like, the death blow. Right, because they they take their their eye off the commercial ball that they're like that they're focusing on because they're grasping at this like free government money over here, and it really isn't right. It just it detracts from the the mission that they're trying to do as a startup. I really want to advise companies to like, okay, make sure that you're doing this for the right reasons and that you're equipped to to do this. So that'd be kind of the advice on on working with with AAL. Moving to Austin, I would look at. What are your needs from a company perspective? What are your challenge, your current challenges with a with your your company? And does Austin uh, provide the value to to make that a, a good decision? So, like an example here, if you're trying to lower overhead, and you are currently in the like California area, you can move to Austin and probably save like forty percent right off the bat on, on like rent and staff costs, like like that. You know. If you're looking for talent and you're having a hard time finding like solid talent and, and the talent isn't sticking around for a long time, Austin's probably a really good move. If you're a company that needs like, like literally like the best of the best of the best, like architect, and like that, like that person only works in Silicon Valley, like okay, maybe you should still move to Austin and just hire that person remotely. But like, you know, like there, there are certain people that live in the Bay Area, right? And if you need that exact person, like take that into consideration. I would say 99% of companies can hire remotely, especially the, over the last two years we found that, or find good talent in Austin. I like one of the biggest challenges I hear from companies moving from, from the Bay Area is like they hire great talent. And six months later, they have to hire new great talent because like that person has been poached. You know, it's very competitive. And so if you're like looking for some stability, um, I think Austin's a really good uh, a really good place. Yeah, I, I think those are like two things I would keep in mind uh, moving to Austin.
2: All right. So the companies are here, they've either moved here or they're already here and you're working with them. One of the things that we've talked about uh, previously on the podcast is the sector diversity in Austin is really powerful. We have all these different types of things. And so now we're talking about kind of the, d- the defense sector. How are you seeing those companies that you're working with integrating with the rest of the innovation ecosystem?
0: So this is a great question. And I'll, I'll share a little bit about my background here. I moved to, to Austin uh, 2015. Uh, I was moving here for a job with Capital Factory and Accelerator here. And I knew I wanted to be in this space. I didn't really know how lucky I was going to be to like get dropped at one of the like innovation hubs in Austin. But there is so much happening in Austin, right? And there's so many like innovation organizers in Austin. Um, that are supporting all these different ecosystems and that's even separate aside from the defense space when i look at the defense space like people probably don't realize this but there's army futures command there's aal there's afworks there's the defense innovation unit diu uh, there's navy folks here there's SpaceWorks folks here there's a group called nga the national geospatial intelligence agency here there's the texas military department they're like and I probably even know, only know half of these people that are that are here, right? But like all these folks are are around for the same exact reason that the AAL is here, right? Like we want to know what's happening in the commercial ecosystem. We want to provide this like front door that people can come knock on and say, hey, I've got an idea that, that the government should be aware of or, or talk to. And we want to do business, right? Like we're not going to say it's going to be easy to do business with us, but we but, but we want to do business with these companies. So like, there's a lot of just players here that want to help and want to work. Right. And so I think from the, coming back to the cultural piece a little bit, right. Like part of what AL is doing and telling the, the army and AFC is like some of the ways that that we support and integrate with these innovation ecosystems are formal ways, right? Like you might have a formal partnership with an innovation ecosystem, but there's all of these informal ways too. Right. And that's really where it's, it's less about like um, talk and just doing right. So, like. Having AEL and AFC and defense people come to events, right? Like we go to meetups and like we attend hackathons sometimes, and like we take meetings with uh, with like VCs to share deal flow and understand who they're seeing, who we're seeing. Um, so really, it's just like talk is cheap, but like doing is doing is what matters here. And so, so I would say that's that's one of the biggest ways that we are trying to culturally change how the DoD approaches engaging these innovation ecosystems. It's just like be a participant, be a good steward, a good business partner, right? Like show up to meetings, show up to events, like reach out, see what people are doing and really just creating that, like that network effect of, um, of how good companies get filtered to us, right? Like that's how good deal flow happens. It's like somebody tells us, Hey, there's this really great company that is doing is solving the problem that you're working on. So that's, I think the biggest way that the, that the army is engaging is just like participating and and supporting.
2: So, what about the engagement kind of across the kind of central Texas military structure? So obviously there are also bases nearby as well. Do you guys? How do you guys connect with that, or do you? Or you know, is it more than just kind of obviously you know within the uh, Austin metro?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we engage with with uh, some of the bases and as well like with the other DoD partners that are here. Um, you know, ge- or like physically geographically. I would say probably the the biggest way that we engage with these bases or other military installations um, is for soldier touch points. So when we're working on a problem, like we have to understand it. And I'm, I come from the civilian world, right? Like when, when people talk about an artillery round and a howitzer cannon, I like sort of know what they're talking about, but they'll actually take me out to, uh, you know, to a military installation and like, let me watch one of these things fire in my you know my eardrums are ringing and i now i know what they're talking about when they say like these things have shock and vibration cool okay i, I get it now right but we do the same thing for the companies that we want to work with too right we we take them out to these installations and we let them see the problems like one of the okay anybody who's done live demos knows that like everything can that can go wrong will go wrong yes so like we we took these companies out to, to look at this uh this process and like they were working on this they were working on the, the artillery reloading project but when we take them out uh, out to the field, like it's rainy, it's pouring rain, like the wrong ammunition has been shipped. And like the guy's trying to like write a note on this like form with the, like a pen and a paper and the paper is like falling apart. And so literally one of the companies is like, hey, we came here thinking that we we're going to pitch this idea. But actually what you guys need is an inventory management system. Like you need a like like a cell phone with some like computer vision that can quickly scan the the, the, the shells or the the pallets, like put that into an inventory management system and like auto request the, like the right stuff for you. That is like standard operating procedure for any like warehouse or like manufacturing company. Right. And, And this company is like, we can build that for you. Right. Like we can like literally like go purchase commercial off the shelf products, like tweak it a little bit, integrate it with your systems and have something for you in like six months. Right. And so that was one of those things that like we had no idea that we needed that um, until we took these companies out there, they saw the problems, they saw the, like, the surrounding problems. And so when we talk, I mean, it's interesting when we talk about like what problems we're solving, like the problem that we initially came out with was like, how do, we, how do we load artillery shells faster? But really what we're looking at is like, how do we make this whole operation faster? How do we make this whole process more efficient and effective? So it's, it's kind of really about re- reframing the problem, less about like physically getting the shell from this spot to that spot and more about like, Holistically, how do we make this this process faster? Anyways, that's a that's an example of one way that we work with, with installations. Part of AAL uh, hiring process is like, you know, we want to hire folks in the commercial sector. We want these folks that can double speak. So, right, you know, they can speak army and they can speak commercial language. I can speak commercial language. I had known nothing about army. So, like, when when I get hired, they're like, hey, you should go to this event out at this base. You should go like talk with these soldiers. And so really just kind of creating that interface where commercial and military folk can uh, can engage. And, and all of that has to happen on, you know, a lot of that happens at the bases.
1: Great. So I'm going to ask you to take the AAL hat off for a second and put on your Austinite hat. <laughs> okay. What are the biggest challenges that Austin faces today?
0: So I think that the biggest challenges that Austin is facing center around growth. Like we've been growing, our economy's been growing. Like the the workforce has been growing, and certain things can grow naturally at at a faster pace than other things, right? And so I look at like transportation, housing costs, housing costs, salary, like competitive salary. I think those are some of the biggest things that are that are challenges, right? Like now, I think that that the last two years has proven that. There's a lot of flexibility that organizations can leverage, like working from home or hybrid work schedules that can alleviate some of those, uh, some of that constriction. As an example, like I moved down south, I used to live very close to downtown, I would like, you know, I had a mile commute into into my office each day It was great, I moved down south. And now it's, you know, it's 30 minutes to, to get into downtown. But if I only have to do that a couple times a week, like, that's the that's the balance of work life that that I like. Right. Um, and as someone that could go to another city or, or go to a different place, uh, to get a job, like, you know, work-life balance is important to me. Um, so I think if, if companies within Austin try to make this like five day of work, like five day in, in the office work schedule, I think the, the transportation and the housing cost piece restriction is going to be much more important to talent, which then stifles economic growth. Um, so I'd say like, Hopefully Austin culture can like be pervasive. I think it's doing a great job so far. Like Austin culture generally understands that work-life balance. I think that's part of what makes Austin special, but I think that that we've got to keep that ethos alive. I mean, culture is another thing too, right? Like anytime mass growth happens or an influx of people, like culture changes. I look at like the the East Austin areas as a microcosm here, like East Austin has changed immensely, uh, over the last five years, that five or six years that I've been here. And, you know, folks from East Austin that I talked to who've been there for their lives say like, that's been happening for the last, you know, 15 years. So like, I I think that culture change, uh, can happen at a quick pace. And unless we're like, like being aware of it, it just kind of happens. Right. And so I think that intentionally corralling culture or like, like keeping certain aspects of culture alive. Uh, Will we'll help maintain the Austin vibe and the Austin ethos that really is part of what makes this place special. So I, I hope that part's addressed as well.
1: Well, Brants, we always uh, close our podcast with the same thing. Brants, what's next, Austin?
0: Oh man, I'm I'm going to take a like a glass half full, purely optimistic approach here, and I hope live events in Austin keep like coming back right like South by South by, I think is going to be a great like proof point here I'm so excited for that like South by is one of the best events uh, I've, I've ever been to right I love South by but even things like I'm starting to see live music again like you know that's partially my my level of comfortability but like oh man I, I uh, was uh, listening to like the, the live radio shows at Guero's on the radio last night I was like man I need to go back and, and attend this this is like such good blues music and it's right in my backyard and it's like silly if i'm not here every night you know so, so i i hope live music and events like keep coming back and that people feel comfortable to to go attend those things again
1: perfect way to end the broadcast branch you thank you very much for joining us good luck with the with the army applications lab
0: michael jason thanks so much for having me it was a great time talking cheers cheers
1: so what's next austin
2: we're glad you've joined us on this journey please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.